0: Welcome to In Conversation. I'm Diana Campos. In Conversation features Dean Michael Horswell and faculty from Florida Atlantic University's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters talking about research and creative activities that span the arts, humanities, and social sciences. Women's rights are still at issue in much of the Islamic world. And this has been of particular interest to Dr. Kelly Shannon, an associate professor NFAU's Department of History. Her first book, published in 2018, explores American concerns for women's human rights and U.S. policy towards the Islamic world
1: since the Iranian Revolution. Historians in my field traditionally believed that most policy issues come from the elites, from the top down. But what I found in this book is that, at least with this issue, that's really not the case. And in the instance of women's rights in the Islamic world, There was broad public interest in the topic first.
0: Professor Shannon is our guest for this edition of In Conversation. She sat down with Dean Horswell in December of 2019.
2: Thank you so much for joining me in conversation this afternoon.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation because of the incredible work you've been doing in the field of international relations and the history of U.S. foreign policy, especially in the 20th century. And i am been curious, of how did you get interested in this field of history?
1: A lot of historians know what they want to work on as soon as they start grad school. That wasn't me. Uh, in my master's program, I knew I wanted to do foreign policy because 9-11 happened when I was in grad school, and that made me more aware of the world. But I had no idea which area of the world I wanted to study or which time period. So I initially ended up writing about Woodrow Wilson and Ireland at Versailles, and Um, That was fine for my master's thesis, but I didn't necessarily want to keep working on that. But right before I finished my master's program, I was a teaching assistant for a women's studies course in addition to a history course. And there was a whole unit on Muslim women in the veil and women's human rights. And that got me interested in the topic just personally. And then as I got to my Ph.D. program, I became more interested in the Middle East in large part because of current U.S. interventions in the Islamic world, through working on papers for my graduate courses and my seminars, I eventually came to the topic that was the dissertation that was the basis for the book. Mm. But it, I was a couple of years into my PhD program before I had a really solid topic unlike mm. some of my friends who knew from like day one. I just don't know how they did that. But <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. exactly.
2: And so this recent book you just mentioned, U.S. Foreign Policy and Muslim Women's Human Rights, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press last year, has been very well received. And is considered a major contribution to how we understand the role of activists at home in the United States, but also the activists in the countries that you study, and how they work to include women's human rights as a central concern for U.S. foreign policy. And I was wondering, how did this come about? What did you discover in your research that tells this story of this kind of transnational coming together of activists in different places?
1: Well, historians in my field traditionally believed that most policy issues come from the elites, from the top down, and that most of the time U.S. behavior is driven by what they call hard power concerns, military strategy, economics, geopolitics. But what I found in this book is that at least with this issue, that's really not the case. And in the instance of women's rights in the Islamic world. There was broad public interest in the topic first, well before you see policymakers talking about it. Um, and I identified the 1979 revolution in Iran as kind of that moment that really captures U.S. public interest. And from that point onward, you see a building public interest in the question of women's equality in Muslim countries. You know, in Iran, women had made significant progress over the course of the 20th century. And with the 1979 revolution, a lot of that work was undone. So Americans were surprised by that. And at that moment in 1979, they had new ways of understanding the world through the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the human rights movement that had built up over the course of the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, So it gave people a new language for talking about the problem of women's equality abroad. And then I saw, you know, feminist activists, of course, had been working in the Islamic world for, you know, decades since at least the late 19th, early 20th century. American feminism had been revitalized in the late 60s and early 70s, and you get this bursting forth of transnational feminist activism right in the 1970s and 80s. So it was at this moment where you have American feminists and feminists from Muslim countries coming together in spaces usually provided by the United Nations, like UN conferences on women that were held in 1975, 80, 85, and then again in 1995. They start to hash out an agenda. They identify issues that they have in common. And they really are able to then create these organizations that are able to turn that public interest in the United States around the issue of Muslim women and kind of leverage that into public support for campaigns for specific policy goals. So it's really feminists from the U.S. and from the Islamic world who first say that women's rights should be a policy issue for the United States. They don't have success immediately. Um, One key example I talk about in the book are protests against the first Gulf War in 1990 to 1991. In that case, feminists were arguing that the U.S. should not be involved in that war because the Saudis oppressed women uh, and they practiced what feminists called gender apartheid. uh, And that was drawing on the very successful anti-racial apartheid movement that had just led to the fall of the apartheid regime. And well, was about to fall um, in South Africa at Mm -hmm. that time. So in that case, feminist protests had no effect on U.S. policymaking. The George H.W. Bush administration wasn't particularly receptive to those arguments. And it was a fast war as well that, you know, policy decisions don't kind of change overnight. But I found that with the Clinton administration, they were much more sympathetic from the outset to those feminist arguments and were more receptive to meeting with feminist activists. And so campaigns by feminist groups uh, during the Clinton years had much more traction and were able to influence policymaking.
2: So this change that you see with the Clinton administration, what kind of outcomes start to emerge from this new receptiveness to the transnational feminist movement?
1: So there are basically two main changes or two main types of changes that I identify. One of them has to do with the structures of U.S. policymaking itself, and the other has to do with some actual policy outcomes. So In the Clinton years, there were feminist activists on the outside lobbying for policy change. But what was remarkable about the Clinton administration is that there are also a significant number of feminists within the administration. And so they set about trying to what they called mainstream feminism across executive branch agencies, meaning that when policymakers were considering new policies, they should always consider how those policies impact women and whether they advance women's equality or not. I mean, the biggest one, of course, is the First Lady, Hillary Rodham Clinton. During Clinton's second term, there was Madeleine Albright, the first female Secretary of State. But behind the scenes, we get new offices. So Clinton restructured the State Department around issues that were more global in scope and less focused on geographic regions, which had been the organization system before. Uh, And one of the offices he created was the Office of International Women's Issues. So that really became the policy powerhouse within the State Department for pushing a women's rights agenda. There's also the President's Interagency Council on Women, which was new under Clinton, and that uh, brought together all of the different executive branch agencies in one place where they talked about women's equality. So those structural changes set in place a system in which you could make policies that centered women. But, it, of course, it took events and it took feminist activism around specific issues to get actual policies. So the couple that I talk about in the book One has to do with the issue of female genital mutilation, um, or female genital cutting, as some people call it now. And during the Clinton years, there was a lot of activism around that, not just the executive branch, but also we see Congress passing laws to outlaw the practice in the United States, to tie foreign aid to efforts to eradicate the custom abroad. We see asylum courts granting some women asylum based on fear of FGM. But then within the Clinton executive branch, we also see policy where they're working with anti-FGM activists from Africa to figure out how to best help them do their work on the ground. The second big, big decision that I I examine is the decision of the Clinton administration not to recognize the Taliban after they seized control of Afghanistan's government in the fall of 1996. And I trace the different ways in which there were actors within the State Department pushing for the U.S. to engage with the Taliban and do business with them largely because there was a planned oil pipeline across Afghanistan that the Taliban promised to provide security for. But because of the Office of International Women's Issues and Madeleine Albright and the First Lady and feminist activists, the, the backlash against that idea was was very great. And I think the natural inclination of the higher-ups in the Clinton administration was to be more sympathetic to women's rights anyway. So the result was a policy of non-recognition. The U.S. declared the Taliban... Was not a legitimate government, specifically because of its abuse of women and girls, and that's the first time we see women's rights being used as like the main reason for a particular policy of that magnitude. Especially because by denying recognition, it killed the oil pipeline deal. So traditionally, people in my field would say, "Well, oil is economic; that will always outweigh any other policy concern." And things like human rights are soft power, and they're fluffy, and Mm -hmm. they're never going to be the number one determinant of U.S. behavior. But in this case, it looks like women's rights genuinely did outweigh a hard power concern. So I'm I'm arguing that in the 90s, things are a little bit different and we need to re-examine what drives U.S. behavior. Right.
2: And how would you trace that decision into the 2000s?
1: Well, so I'm going to leave aside the current Uh (laughs) administration. What I saw was that the Clinton period then set the precedent for later presidents to take up the issue of women's Mm -hmm. rights. In the Clinton years, the focus was not solely on Muslim women. There was a much broader policy push to fight for women's equality at home and abroad in multiple ways and dealing with all kinds of women. In the Bush administration, the focus was primarily on women in Afghanistan and Iraq and women in Islam. But there were these offices that Clinton had set up that were still in existence. There was a precedent for saying that women's rights should be central to U.S. behavior. So when the Bush administration argued that women's liberation in Afghanistan was a major policy goal after the U.S. invasion in 2001, he was building on that precedent that Clinton had laid out. Of course, one of the major differences is that with Bush, that women's liberation policy came along with military intervention, Mm -hmm. uh, which is highly problematic. In the Obama years, I saw a return more towards that Clinton style of policymaking around women's issues, particularly when Hillary Clinton was the secretary of state. So she really kind of revived a lot of the institutions from her husband's administration. She created new positions like a global ambassador for women's issues. She declared very vocally that women's rights were the cornerstone of her foreign policy making. But, I mean, it's, it's harder to study the 21st century because of the lack of government documents at the moment mm-hmm. due to classification. But from what I saw, it seemed like there was a, a bit of a tension between the president and the and secretary of state Clinton over the issue mm-hmm. because he was sort of backing off of nation building and winnings hearts and minds and that language in places like Afghanistan that the Bush administration had pushed. And yeah. Hillary was very much still saying that women's rights should be at the forefront of the agenda, regardless of which country we're dealing with. Yeah. Since then, it's less of a policy issue, I think. But,
2: mm. Interesting. Yeah. So you alluded to some of the kind of methodological concerns you had to think about working on a really close to contemporary mm. topic. How did you access information, materials, informants, et cetera, mm. for your work, especially on the countries that at some points in time in your research were at war mm. and were basically conflict zones?
1: Yeah, that's always a challenge is getting the material there are different challenges working on the more distant past but I had to get very creative with my sources because I trace the trajectory of this policy issue from the public through feminist activists and into policymaking that meant that I could use public conversation type sources like um, newspaper articles editorials Hollywood films to sort of lay out the public sphere I was able to get access to the records of key NGOs, particularly the Women Living Under Muslim Laws, which is currently based out of London, and the Sisterhood is Global Institute, which had all of its records at Duke University in the archives, so that was was a huge find. And then in terms of government documents, there were declassified documents at the Clinton Presidential Library. The interesting thing is that most of the foreign policy documents that had been declassified were then reclassified under a national security exception, mm. except for a lot of the stuff dealing with women's issues during his presidency. So somebody determined they're not of current, you know, national security value. Uh, it's a little insulting, but it was actually <laughs> good for me because I got the documents. And there's also an online Freedom of Information Act portal for the State Department where you can do a digital search. That's uh, I find it a little bit less helpful than going to the archives because you don't see the documents around them, but you can still do keyword searches and pull documents up. And the last thing I did that was really helpful was interviews. So there were a lot of oral history interviews that other people had done that I could access, but I also interviewed Teresa Lohr, who was the head of the Office of International Women's Issues under Clinton and was sort of the one setting up this policy and in the rooms with all the big names who I was studying. I interviewed Manaz Naz Afkami, the leader of the Sisterhood is Global Institute in the 90s and a major figure in the women's rights NGO world. And I interviewed Shireen Tahir Kelly who worked in the George W. Bush administration on women's issues. So they were able to help me fill in some of the gaps in the documents. But in terms of the countries I was studying, there was no way I could go there to do research given Mm -hmm. the situation. But I found that the story I chose to tell was one in which only those women from Muslim countries who had the ability to speak to Americans in the U.S. context had a lot of weight. So I was able to bring in those voices because they were s- like publishing in the U.S., speaking in the U.S. Some of them were living in the U.S. But what women and other people in those countries were saying had less weight, which was helpful because I didn't have access to that at the time either. Oh,
2: oh, fascinating challenge that you had to overcome <laughs> now to get that, that work done. So I thought we would turn now because I know you have a, a new book project underway. The tentative title is U.S. Iran relations from 1905 to 1953. I was wondering, could you give us a preview of what you're working on in that book?
1: Sure. I'm really excited to be working on a new project. So I'm looking at American-Iranian interactions during the first half of the 20th century. So it'll include government-to-government relations, which is the traditional realm of diplomatic history, but I'm also going to be looking at non-state actors like missionaries, oil company executives, Iranians traveling to the United States, cultural perceptions that both sides have of one another to flesh out, you know, how did the foundation of the U.S. relationship really develop? I choose 1905 because that's the start of the first Iranian revolution where they were fighting to create a constitution and have the Islamic world's first democracy. And that didn't work out because the Russians and the British didn't let it work out. But Americans were involved in that in some way. And then I choose 1953 as the end point because that's when the US and the British orchestrated a coup that overthrew the Iranian prime minister in 1953. Most historians start with 1953 or they're focused on 1979, so I'm going back and looking at the earlier years to see you know, where did the current relationship start.
2: Mm-hmm. So the current tensions between the two countries, how are they going to affect your project?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> I, for one, I'm definitely not going to be able to go to Iran to do archival research, yeah. which is uh, a shame. There are Iranian documents in the United Kingdom, in the United States, and some other places that I can try to access. And I'm learning Persian, so I'm able Mm. to do that. But, you know, there are challenges for that. And there are other challenges for doing an older project. Like, I found out one of my key actors, uh, his personal papers went up in smoke in a house fire in 1992. And everybody in the field had been wondering that this guy has to have papers somewhere. Where are they? Well, I found out... So that was heartbreaking, but, you know, we just have to work with what's available.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you anticipate finishing this project in the next couple of years or how long do you think it's going to take?
1: Well, it depends on whether I'm able to get travel funding from various grant organizations mm-hmm. that I'm applying for, but I anticipate within the next couple of years I should be far enough along to have a full manuscript. You know, We'll see which challenges come up in, in, in document access, but I'm trying to get this project in print as quickly as I can.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you think this kind of project can affect how our policymakers look at the current relationship between Iran and the United States?
1: I don't particularly have much confidence in the current administration's approach to Iran or their knowledge level about Iran or its people, but I would hope that potentially other policymakers who might be taking over could pay attention to this story, because a lot of people cast the U.S.-Iran relationship as something that was inevitably going to be one of hostility, and that's not at all the case. There was a very cordial, very friendly relationship early on, and the reason it soured in large part had to do with U.S. decisions and not with the Iranians, um, 1953 being a big example of that. So Mm -hmm. um, I think we can learn a lot from the goodwill that existed in the past because I think it's possible that we could recapture that in the future.
2: So Dr. Shannon, you hold the Chastain-Johnson Middle Eastern Studies Professorship at FAU in our College of Arts and Letters. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the upcoming series that you've organized.
1: Yes, I'm very excited to be able to put together programming at FAU that promotes Middle Eastern Studies. This past fall, in early November, we had an event on the 40th anniversary of the Iran hostage crisis. And our featured speaker was Dr. Roham Alvandi from the London School of Economics. That went really well. So in the spring, I have two upcoming events planned. The first would be Hoda Hawa from the Muslim Public Affairs Council, who would be speaking about current activism by the Muslim American community to defend their rights. That date is to be determined, but I'm hoping for late January. Then in late March, we are going to have Dr. Salim Yacoub from the History Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who will be speaking about Arab Americans and U.S. Middle East policy in the 20th century. And his forte is especially in like the 1950s to 1970s. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited about that. And then next year, I'll be putting together another slate of events, possibly a, a film series or other speakers. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned.
2: (laughs) That's fantastic. It's an important part of the world. And Mm -hmm. we're lucky to have professors like you here at FAU teaching this material as well as doing this research that's having such an impact through your publications, through your books and articles. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you today.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Professor Kelly Shannon and Dean Michael Horswell of FAU's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters. In Conversation. They were recorded. In December of twenty nineteen. In Conversation is a production of doctor Kevin Petrick and journalism students in FAU School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. These students include me, Diana Campos, and Amber Kelly,
2: Max Maldonado,
0: Yasmin Van Arkel,
2: and Luke Finnamore.
0: All of us thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us for another edition of In Conversation.